0: Welcome, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the BBA and thank you for joining us.
1: My name is Krista Hawley and I'm a hearing officer at the Department of Public Utilities and I'm a co-chair of the BBA's Energy Committee. Uh, my co-chair Dave McSweeney is here from uh, Equinor. And um, oh, before we get started, uh, I would just note that I'm here in my personal capacity and not representing the department or administration in any of my remarks. Um, thank you to all the folks at the BBA, as always, for hosting us. It is very exciting to be back in person. I think this is our first event in person for the Energy Committee. Um, on that note, we are planning for the return of our energy conference in person this spring. Uh, we are hoping for the afternoon of Wednesday, April 26th. So look for more information on that in the coming weeks, and then hopefully we will see many of you there. Um Priya, you may have noticed is not here. (laughs) So before I introduce our our panelists, um, she is stuck in traffic and hopefully will join us. And maybe if not, I said she gets the first of the official BBA beverages in the back, given that she is um, struggling to get here behind an accident on the mass pike. Um, But I have the pleasure of introducing the distinguished panel that we do have here to let you know what it's really like to be an energy lawyer. Each of our panelists, including Priya, uh, has extensive and varied experience, um, and all of them just could not be busier right now. So we are very appreciative of the generosity of time uh, in joining us. Um, So I will just briefly introduce our panelists and let them get to it. Uh, Liz Anderson is the deputy chief of the Energy and Telecommunications Division of the Massachusetts Office of the Attorney General. Liz advocates for consumers in a wide range of matters concerning gas and electricity regulation, including base distribution rate cases, grid mod proposals, basic service rates, and municipal aggregations. Liz also participates in civil investigations of electric suppliers for violations of consumer protection law, and she advocates in various venues for additional transparency and oversight of the individual residential electric supply market. Liz is a graduation a graduate, of New England School of Law and received her BA in history from the University of Virginia. Priya. We will keep that as a surprise, but she's wonderful. <laughs> uh, Stephen Roundtree is the deputy program director for the Mid-Atlantic and uh, Northeast with the national advocacy nonprofit Boat Solar. Stephen's work focuses on solar policy development and program design prior prioritizing needs of low wealth and communities of color and advancing economic justice in the energy transition. Stephen was born and raised in Dunstable, Mass., and currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. He's a Boston College, Northeastern School of Law, and Vermont Law School alum. So I think he just hit a lot of bases for people in the room. (laughs) Um, And so with that, Uh, Liz, can
2: you tell us about uh, your experience at the AG's office and what it's like to be an energy lawyer? Sure. (laughs) I'll give a little bit of an overview. Um, So I work in the Energy and Telecommunications Division, which we call ETD for short, which is part of the Energy and Environment Bureau in the Office of Attorney General Andrea Campbell. Um, by statute, ETD is the ratepayer advocate for Massachusetts ratepayers. And ratepayer is just another word for a consumer who pays a regulated utility bill, electric, gas, water. Um, ETD most often participates in proceedings before the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities. So I know Krista yeah. and her colleagues quite well. Um, regarding regulated distribution rates. Um, We also appear at the FERC, the Federal Agency Regulatory Commission, um, on issues regarding federal and regional energy policy, including transmission and other um, supply issues. Um, And we actively participate as a stakeholder at ISO New England. In fact, our Primary representative in NEPOL is here today, Ashley. Thank you for coming. Um, we also spend a lot of time on competitive electric supply, which is technically unregulated, but causes a lot of consumer protection issues um, that we are we try to enforce. Um, Et's work has evolved over the last decade. We used to really solely focus on costs and ensuring that the utilities were providing safe and reliable electric, gas, and water service um, at the lowest possible. Cost and you know, thanks in part to the leadership of former Attorney General Moore Healy we've also we've really evolved to focus on also ensuring that the Commonwealth's clean energy and climate goals are being met in a smart and cost-effective way, so that it's most beneficial for ratepayers in the long run. Um, and more recently, we've um, been putting a lot more emphasis on equity and looking at these ratepayer funds and how um, they can most benefit those who have been left behind in the past um so I expect our work will continue to evolve as we make our way through this clean energy transition we have new challenges every year um and we it's a really exciting place to be lots of policy um lots of energy policy lots of politics lots of um changes and it's it's a fun, um, even though it sounds very dry, and you're here, so you must be somewhat interested. It's really fun. So, looking forward to talking about it more. Thanks.
1: Great, thank you, um, Stephen. If you could kind of do the same, share uh, your our most policy person, I think, and just share what you've been doing at and do at Vote Solar.
3: Sure. Yeah. So 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 excited to be joining you all here, um, and excited to talk about Vote Solar's work, and excited to get into the conversation. So, yeah, my name is Stephen Rauchy, Um, as you mentioned, I'm the deputy program director for the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast with Vote Solar, which is a national policy advocacy organization. Um, So basically, we're working in about 25 states across the country, work at the state level um, in legislatures, uh, as well as in front of the commissions, the executive branch, um, to promote, advocate for, campaign uh, on behalf of policies that support sort of the growth of solar as a technology, as part of sort of the healthy grid of the future, um, as well as make sure that um, policies that um, that are passed and that become uh, the law of the land are supporting and, and prioritizing the needs of disadvantaged community members, bJ communities um, across the country. It's it's worth noting. Um, Vote Solar sort of started in, in like two thousand two, I think, as a, a California based, just basically like solar booster. Like we worked hand in hand with the solar industry, really helping to to create sort of non interested or sort of non industry campaigns, sort of demonstrate that solar can be part of the future and can be part of, uh, um, the, the grid of tomorrow as like a viable resource. Um, but that mission has changed, um, pretty significantly over the years, um, to really focus on like, all right, we've got some tailwind now, right? IRA just passed, um, in the, the years intervening years have been like new policies put in place, including ones like smart that sort of set a path for solar development. Um, And so Vote solar has changed our focus, to really look at economic justice and try to um, solve barriers for making sure that everyone can get included um, with, with, with solar, which is exciting, which is really what I'm passionate about. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's there's so many things going on. I think like it, it's it's funny doing it state by state that there's you're working in places at different levels of maturity of, of a market and different levels of uptake um, among you know, residents, um, uh, politicians, everyone. So somewhere like Pennsylvania, we're working in, in the Keystone State to literally um, create a law that would authorize Community solar. So literally just getting the sort of um, legal sort of regulatory um, puzzle pieces in place that would allow people to share the proceeds of a solar array somewhere in Pennsylvania, which is now like not a thing Um, where like elsewhere, like here or like in New York, New York is leading the way with already a gigawatt of community solar. Um, of these shared solar gardens. So the issues are different there. And we're able to focus a lot on um, things like public power. If you're following New York, um, they're about to pass a law that reforms the public authority, um, hopefully, um, to really um, have more of an authority from the state and also serve low income people um, with cut rate electricity, um, while they decarbonize the state's supply. So super excited about sort of multiple streams of work that are happening in different states. um, And you know, work closely with stakeholder groups, including still the industry and also our EJ partners and Enviro groups. Um, and we've got a team of folks, uh, you know, a campaign lead and a reg lead who work here in the Northeast, as well as the same for uh, the Mid Atlantic states. And I support their work. Um, yeah, and, and again, it's, if you're wondering, my fun fact is I don't practice law. Uh, I went to I went to Northeastern. Um, sort of with the idea out of college and I'm like well you know I had this uh, the, the, took the model of like the NAACP of being like let's codify social movements um and, and sort of like looking at that as as a model through the environment and like you can use that uh, just you know wide-eyed about using energy law to codify social movements around around um, um around protecting the climate protecting uh, communities against climate change and things like that and sort of found policy midway through as a way to sort of shortcut it, <laughs> I guess, so to sort of speak and just say like, well, I, I think I'd like to do this more. Um, so sort of re-scrambled, did the joint program with with Vermont Law and Northeastern and kind of emerged with, the, with a master's degree in policy as well as my law degree and um, was working for a community group for years uh, in in New York City before I, I moved along to to vote solar. So that's a little bit about me and, and then what we do. So yeah, I'm jazzed to, to jump in here.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I guess generally we'll just uh, bring it back to kind of a, in terms of uh, what it's like to be an energy lawyer. Um, just what are some of the highlights for you in a typical work week or maybe in a typical good work week if some of them can kind of get away from you? Um, just what are the things about, again, in in, in the different roles? Um, Liz, you know, I kind of see you as more of Doing litigation essentially, and then you know Stephen very different role. So it's I think it's a good good contrast. So um, you know, just what are the highlights for you?
3: Sure. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, it's I have in my role like a little bit of of FOMO from being an individual contributor. I, I had been an advocate who was like you know roaming the Capitol halls and sort of digging in um, and you know, negotiating terms for for bills that were happening, understanding what where different legislators were at, trying to talk through talking points on why this is important, um, aligning stakeholders to to put pressure on elected officials and things like that. Um, now like the role I have now is just more meta mostly, where I'm working um, with staff to sort of problem solve around those things, provide them with resources to do it. Um so like we talked about like how do you start your how do you start your weekend, those one of the questions that I was excited to answer. And it's like Monday morning is like we, we do check-ins, everyone, we have a check-in, like what's the situation, like how can I help? How can I, um, how does the change in, in scenery since last week impact what we're doing? Um, things like that, um, but also able to take on some of the, the legacy projects I was working on now, including like right now it's the end of session for New York. So we're working on literally negotiating new terms for what the New York, Public, uh, new York Power Authority is gonna be able to do and what their role is and how to clarify um, their relationship to the solar industry. Um, so we have a guard. We have a spot on the board of the New York Solar Ener- Energy um, Industry Association, and we're also members of uh, the New York State Energy Democracy Alliance, which like don't get along. But we've been able to sort of bridge that gap um, and you know create mutual solutions that we're hoping that turn into the law in the budget um, in the next couple of days. So so yeah, just really working with partners um, and working with the team to sort of get policy wins
0: and make the world a better place through the work we do. Um, I think it's sort of my favorite part. Um
2: okay. Well, um as you mentioned we do a lot of litigation in the AG's office. Um and we also do I mean a lot of our most of our work is defensive. So Monday, you know, Monday morning I say what what does the department of public utilities going to do this week? <laughs> How is it gonna make or break what's going on with everything else that we're doing? Um, no, we have we have deadlines that are set, you know, procedural schedules that we have to meet. Um, and I as deputy chief in the division, I am not managing my own cases so much as I am. Supervising cases and reviewing testimony that needs to be filed, reviewing briefs that need to be filed, um, talking about case strategy, kind of helping mentor some of the younger attorneys, because we do have a lot of younger attorneys come on board. Um, We just hired somebody as an energy fellow who was right out of law school. Um, And we, you know, if they're young and passionate, not young, you don't have to be young. I was, (laughs) I would just want to say I went, I started as a lawyer at the age of 32. So, you know, that's not, I shouldn't have said that, but you're new out of law school. An experience in practicing law that does not necessarily mean you're not going to be an immediate asset to our office because you really just need to have the passion and the willingness to learn. Um, And we take it from there. And so I do a lot, do spend a lot of time with some of the newer attorneys, kind of teaching them about energy law and what our practice looks like. So... Monday morning as me saying okay what what deadlines do we need to meet this week um that person hasn't sent me their testimony yet it's due in a few weeks or a few days i need to talk to them um but i i get really excited when we do have like a great piece of testimony that i think makes a really persuasive case for why um our recommendations or modifications to the proposals that the utilities put forward will more you know will deliver more benefits to ratepayers in the long run and um i get excited when we get a dp order that gives us a couple of wins yes. um and i get excited when we have a a settlement agreement that saves repairs money on wholesale electric supply costs even though i have a very hard time describing exactly what happened in that settlement agreement. <laughs> it's very difficult. Um uh the wholesale electric supply markets are an um, interesting place. You have to really focus on that as your entire practice. Um which i do not, but we do have some attorneys that work with us that do that. Um so i think mean, there's every every week is different. Um but like i said it's always it's always exciting and Challenging.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I guess I'll jump in a little bit more as the third panelist here. Um just at the uh at the department, we too have hired a lot of folks. I did not come in and one of my colleagues who's here did not come in with energy specific experience. Um and I think that's the vast majority of hearing officers at the department. Um it's a treat and a bonus when people come in knowing what FERC is or ISO. Um, but you know, it's it's a lot about um, a specific uh set of skills. Um what movie is that from? <laughs> taken. Um, so different than those skills, not those. <laughs> um, so, but it's, it's about, um, you know, as Liz said, managing cases and in her instance, managing a team of their cases. So, um, just in thinking about, you know, this talk today and what could be useful is just thinking back into, um, you know, whether, um, you know, in private practice and in different areas, and then as a hearing officer, um, you know, in doing different things. What is like a specific skill that, that you might not necessarily take a class in, but is really, um, kind of been consistent. And for me, it's, um, learning to think about, um, obviously more of a litigator, but thinking about the record, um, at the very beginning of the case before anything starts. So as a hearing officer, we're thinking of, you know, the, uh, making sure that, um, there's evidence in the record for either supporting or not the company's proposal, but for our perspective, if you have to write an order, if you're planning on saying something, you need to be able to base it in the record and that all has to be done well in advance in the discovery phase. Um, And then same thing if you're on a uh, representing clients and permitting, Um, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into seeing down the road, not just the permit um requirements, but then also if there is an appeal, you're going to have an appellate record and you don't get another shot to open that. So if you've missed when you were first putting your permit package together, you could be in trouble. Um, and so it's just a way of thinking about a case. And then, um, you know, with some detail to that, that I've found has been a consistent thread. And I think is why I like being a hearing officer. I like doing that in terms of I like appellate work. Um, it's not for everybody, but I don't know if you have any tricks of the trade that um, you think. um, I don't know. Again, there's not a class about it, but um, just something that you find day to day
2: helpful in managing a lot, a lot of
1: cases on your plate. (laughs)
2: Um, I think civil procedure, you know, one of the things we were talking about is like, what's a law school class that you you you're using all the time that you didn't think you would need. And I, my answer was civil procedure, not because I don't, not because like when I took civil procedure, I thought I wasn't going to use it. I think I was just hoping I didn't have to use it. <laughs> I'm just not a fan of civil procedure, but it is an incredibly important part of our day-to-day work. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've dug into the department's regulations on like how to admit evidence into the record. Maybe like Krista was saying, if we didn't have the foresight or if something comes up kind of a little bit too late and you can't, you can't get it through discovery. um, And maybe you didn't even have an opportunity to get it at an evidentiary hearing. So what do you do? And sometimes you can, there's like, you know, they can do an administrative notice of things that are, you know, within the general public knowledge, but and the question is if you bring it up in the initial brief or the reply there's all sorts of rules and and it's amazing how much time you can spend on this but it's very interesting why <laughs> as, a, as a geek i guess that i am i i find it to be an interesting kind of intellectual question you have a back and forth with the um opposite side uh, arguing about it uh introducing Yeah. <laughs> Priya Ganbier
1: is a senior attorney in the Clean Energy and Climate Change Program at the Conservation Law Foundation. Priya is also a co-chair of the BBA's Air Quality and Climate Change Committee, who co-sponsored our event today. So thank you to Priya and her co-chair, Lauren Coram of Beverage and Diamond, who couldn't be here today. Um, at CLF, Priya works in pursuit of a clean and just energy future by, in part, working collabor- collaboratively with local community groups, advocating and litig- litigating before public utility commissions and engaging with New England's regional independent electrical systems system operator, ISO New England. Priya is a graduate of Wellesley College and received both her JD and LLM in environmental law from Vermont Law School. So welcome. Um, if you're settled, do you wanna uh, just take a few minutes and tell us about your work at CLF and what it's like to be an energy lawyer from your perspective, your path?
0: Sure, so um, obviously, being at CLF, I'm- Oh, I it. Pretty... Oh, it just stays on. Cool. Um, so obviously being at CLF, I'm coming from the
4: nonprofit sector um i'd say that it can vary a lot for me um but overall the in terms of the general amount of work it ebbs and flows for sure um there are definitely times where there're sprints there are times in between sprints where there's a little bit more of an opportunity to strategize and reflect um so those are definitely times that we like to take advantage of because it helps us to be deliberate in our planning and really deliberate in de- determining what matters we want to take on, where we think that will be the most impactful. Um, in terms of the substance of my advocacy, there are really two kind of like buckets that I would categorize my work falling into. One being pushing for advancements in clean energy. So for example, I uh, do advocacy before I um, ISO New England, and I see Ashley there. um, And uh, CLF is a member of the New England Power Pool, which advises the uh, regional electric grid operator, ISO New England. Um, So in that capacity, we push for changes that are gonna allow clean energy to really um, be integrated more into our uh, energy systems. And then on the other hand, are on the other side, we're also trying to push for policies that are decarbonizing our uh, buildings, our transportation sector, um, and moving Massachusetts and the region as a whole off of uh,
0: fossil fuels, uh, particularly gas. So those are kind of the primary two buckets. That's great. That's great. um
1: Priya, I'm curious, did you, I mean, clearly were interested in environmental law um, given your educational background, but were you focused on energy specifically? And if not, how did you end up where you are?
4: Sure. Um, I didn't have a particular focus in law school uh, on one specific area of uh, the environment. I actually, I, I guess if I... If I had, if you'd asked me like before I joined CLF where I thought I was going to end up, it was more in like a municipal uh, wetlands context. So I, uh, prior to prior to joining CLF, was municipal council for a city in central Massachusetts. Um, I also served for six years on my hometown's conservation commission, which um, administers and enforces the state's Wetlands Wetlands Protection Act. And I had interned at the Department of Environmental Protection for Massachusetts. So I probably would have assumed that that's where I was headed. Um, But I I mean, essentially, I saw the job posting, applied, and um, to a degree, you know, the for example, like the the work at ISO has really been something that I've been learning. Um, I, I had some experience at, from uh, internships at when I was in law school at the Department of Public Utilities. I'd interned a couple of times, so I had some experience from there. But um, the, like more in depth work, I've been I've had to learn as a part of my job. Um, but I'm really happy to like be
0: able to be a part of this really important time for Massachusetts. Yeah, that's great. Um,
1: I, I was sim- doing similar work in, in in that area of environmental law, and yeah, again, here we are. Um, so I think that that's that's not uncommon. Um, I want to ask about the importance of uh, mentorship, both um, in each of your careers, and I guess essentially, especially for those of us who started out not with a clear focus in energy law law, and maybe came into a place where we really needed to learn. Um, And also just speak to maybe um, experiences in helping mentor newer folks, uh, particularly in a either completely remote or hybrid environment, since I imagine that that's going to be um, I feel tremendously for everyone who's had to start at a job and show up at their computer and not being able to meet anyone in person. I Huge credit to all the people who are doing that. And so um, just to the extent, um, you know, we are here because we want to help and mentor and meet people. And so um, we've had a little bit of experience, I think, as
0: some of the uh, more seasoned people in the room. So if you just want to share some of that, that would be great. Okay. So I'll
2: start at the beginning. I I came into energy law kind of by accident. I fell into it. I knew I went to law school. I've been a paralegal for seven years, um, mostly for private companies. And I saw what it was like to be a lawyer. And I decided if I was going to work that hard, I was going to do it for something I really cared about. And that was serving the public. And I really knew I wanted to do government law. I wasn't sure what. Um, And I was assigned to the energy and telecommunications division for my government lawyer internship. And I never looked back. (laughs) So I went right out of law school and... Um, I have to credit so many people as my mentors. Um, I still work with them to this day. Um, They're my mentors, my friends, Um, the people that work in the energy and telecommunications division, especially really care about the work. They're really passionate and they're happy to kind of bring other people along. It's not like, I know other like law firm environments, it's can be cutthroat. Um, People can be micromanaging. Um, That's just, we don't have that at all. It's a very collegiate collegiate collegial environment. It's been a long day. Um, It's a very collegial environment and it's a great place to learn. Um, And um, so I try to, hold up that tradition. As I was mentioning earlier, I, you know, do a lot of mentoring to the younger attorneys that come on board. Um, And, you know, we, we've been very successful in developing um, attorneys and with the remote work situation, I just try to be really aggressive and I do a lot of cold calls, you know. I always apologize for it, but I'm like, (laughs) technically it's in the middle of the day. (laughs) Your light is green. I'm going to call you. I just want to talk to you. I want to make sure, you know, I want to touch base or I just want to make sure that they know that I know they're there and that I I know that they might have questions and not feel comfortable reaching out to me. So I try to, I think to me as a, somebody in that role, that managerial role, the mentor role, being proactive and like,
0: you know, not, you know like not waiting for them to come to you is important. Yeah, a lot of
3: that, that really resonates with me. I mean, I think for me, the, my sort of experience with being, being mentored and and then sort of in a world where I'm sort of learning to, to be a mentor is I think it's like, it's just an interesting um, experience that it really works both ways. I think as a, someone who is looking for mentorship, I think you're like, oh man, I need someone to like take pity on me (laughs) and like kind of like tell me how to do this. But truly, I think if someone who's mentoring someone will be like, look, at like this person is earlier in their their career, but like we're going to have things to offer each other. And like this mentorship relationship is just like one of many kinds of relationships that's just going to turn into something else. Like you're always going to be able to be like, hey, can I talk to that person? And like you're going to like turn your back and then look back and they'll be in the field you work in. And there'll be stuff that they can tell you that you didn't know be connections they can make for you that you didn't have. And so I think it's like, I think like being liberated from feeling like it's like a patronage thing is like really important. And like being, being mentored by someone is like, it's just part of a relationship that is is like super rewarding for both people. And so that's like, I would encourage you with that. Um, I think some of the, some of the best, um, mentorship advice i have i can just drop that on you then i'll let you know like a little bit about how i got sort of sort of into this like really quickly but i think like i have having um having a mentor that they can sort of like be a little bit of a guide on like who you can trust and i think this is like it's kind of an, an interpersonal thing where you're like hey i'm new to this scene I don't, I don't i need to talk to people we're trying to get policy work done and i think if someone can just sort of like short circuit the learning curve by just being like hey i trust this person i think you should trust them and this is someone you can collaborate with, who I've collaborated with. I think that's like that's a, like a really great way to be on a fast lane um, toward, um, toward sort of learning f- quicker, um, being more effective. Um, but yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's sort of my experience. I mean, I, I distinctly remember being in law school and saying, here we're reading about energy law as like just having it come up. Or maybe I was reading Chevron or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it came up and I was like, energy law, like, energy feels really ungovernable to me um and and that was sort of the thought that had at the time and like um yeah didn't give it didn't give it too much a thought until i ended up found myself consulting for an insurance company that was doing uh piracy insurance and part of what they were dealing with was like people stealing like people like stealing and like like uh, or holding for ransom like oil ships um that was interesting was doing that work for a couple of years uh, uh in jersey city new jersey and then basically just like stomped down to my local community group one day and was like, how can I help you guys? <laughs> um, and then, you know, one of my, you know, my sort of longtime uh, mentors, like, you know, the guy who worked there was like, all right, let's do it. Let's figure it out. And was working in, working in sort of building efficiency advocacy. And then, and then got sort of rolled up into this New York City involved um, solar program where we were writing EPC contracts. Um, so engineering and procurement design projects for um or contracts for low-income um low-income co-op buildings and like doing or community organizing around that so that was sort of like the first thing i'm like oh this is like really something that can help people out where you can like lower your bills make your home livable make it affordable uh and it was sort of like an entree into like the crazy deep world that like i know a little bit of these two are like really um super super deep in the weeds on understanding and um yeah. So it's, it's like, there's lots of left turns. I, I always like, with them, I'll just get the chance to encourage folks of like careers are iterative. They, they don't always go the way you think they will or hope, but they, um, if you keep at it, they'll like always be, you always find that you'll be satisfied with it um, in, in some way, shape or form. So I, I, I would encourage you with that uh, as well.
1: Yeah. Thank you. We were actually saying before we turned our mics on that um, just by being the type of student and new lawyer who's here and participating in the BBA or Light years ahead of where some of us were in our careers. So credit to you for doing that, and we're um, so happy you're here. Um, Priya, do you have anything else on that?
0: Um, sure. I, I guess
4: that the only additions I would make are, so in my my personal experience is that I, I wouldn't say that I had like a proper at work mentor until I joined CLF and now I have both somebody who um, acts as a mentor to me and I also act as a mentor to um, to uh, more junior attorneys and to interns as well. Um, but before this, I would say I was able to gain some of that, those same sorts of benefits by being a part of organizations like, uh, the Boston Bar Association, for example, or, um, you know, whatever bar associations or networking groups, um, you might have access to, uh, that are, that have like an an identity basis that is, uh, something you relate to or an affiliation or in, um, A topic that you're interested in um, because you can find those relationships outside of just like the typical ways. Um, So, through your schools or through anything like that, I would definitely encourage um, just making connections with people um, and just don't be afraid to reach out to people and talk to them. I definitely have also sent like many emails to attorneys who were just like, I don't have time to talk to you. Usually, like, older like like older male attorneys will be like I don't have time to talk to you but <laughs> there definitely were plenty of attorneys who reached out and were like yeah I'm happy to grab a coffee with you and you know I did develop relationships with people who um were were very willing to help were' willing to like connect me with people were' willing to look over uh, resumes and cover letters and things like that, or, or, you know, just help me to be in the right place at the right time, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so don't be afraid to look at atypical avenues. Thank you. Yeah.
1: I think our, our experience, um, up here, particularly, uh, those of us in in Massachusetts and many of us in, in the room is that it's an incredibly small bar, uh, the folks who consider themselves energy practitioners. It's a very small world. And so um, you know, your former colleague are now DWER commissioner, DWR Commissioner Elizabeth mahoney recommended Stephen because they knew each other and we knew each other from cases and Priya. And so it's all just and people move jobs and help each other with that. And um it's it it it's a good reason if you weren't already going to be the kind of colleague who, um, you know, even if you're on the other side of a case, grants that extension, has a little grace, um, you know, it's it's a small world and you never know, um, you know, who's going to be coming back and being your boss, <laughs> for example. <laughs> So, um, you know, I like that aspect of it. I think um, it's neat. And again, I I do this because I like to make these um, connections and relationships. And I think it's better for the practice. Um, But I do want to let you guys rip on um, some policy and substance as well. Um, So um, I guess just to start it off, uh, is there a Particular body of law or new or otherwise, just something of substance that's really exciting or interesting to you right now.
3: I, I can start because I didn't turn my mic off last time. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I think one sort of sort of trend that I think is really interesting that's sort of in in maybe like the second inning of, of it, it's of it as a as a phenomenon are like these like statewide decarbonization, like climate laws. And I think like you know, sort of a handful of states have them. Others that don't are in process. Like New Jersey is like thinking about it. Um, Massachusetts, you know, passed in 2020, 2020 or in 2020, 2021. Um, New York was in 2019. And I think like from my perspective as an advocate, like those are sort of the, like, it's not the win. It's just like, it sets the conditions for the next million fights. And it's like, it's the the hook and the backdrop for like everything you can do. It's the scoreboard you point at when you want to, show someone that, that you've got the right policy and, and they're doing it wrong. So I, I think that's like tremendously interesting. I think like looking at DPU's new uh, mandate to like, to ch- like their mission has changed, you know, sort of like vague terms, right? Sort of like general terms mm-hmm. on what the mission of DPU is. And now it's, um, you know, it includes reaching the mandates under the decarbonization schedule, you know, set by the law and also equity, <laughs> which uh, we're like, we, you know, I think 99% sure means social equity, but like words mean things and it's like slightly unclear exactly what it means. But like, there's, there's so many new things you can advocate for the DPU to do because literally it's like, this is your new job and your job has changed from what it like every DPU has always had for the job, um, which is fascinating. Um, And, you know, like again, New York, so like I've been working in New York sort of primarily. So that's where a lot of my sort of deepest knowledge is, but like, they've got, you know, there's a requirement that 35, at least 35 and, and um, aspirationally 40% of benefits of public spending um, go to disadvantaged communities across New York, which is a defined term. It's a shaped, defined shaped term. And so that there's so many different ways to interpret that and like enforce that and like make program design around that to meet it. So that that's, yeah, the, the, the decarbonization laws, like the carbon diet laws, I think are like fantastically interesting. And they vary, they're like, they're suited for the particular state. Um, but they just offer so many opportunities to, to bring about the world. You want to see this sort of beyond what the four corners of those, those laws mean.
0: Yeah. Oops. Have you ruined it already? Um, I was going to
4: say the same, so I'll just kind of piggyback, but I think that my, my one addition to to what you've said is uh, like, what excites me about the decarbonization laws and the like really ambitious uh, greenhouse gas emissions mandates that we've we've set forth is that they're really represent representative of work by so many people. Like it's not just legislators who are writing these laws. It's environmental advocates it's grassroots organizations it's people who are on the ground like everyday massachusetts residents every day like wherever you are residents who are mobilizing and actually creating change and it's just like so uplifting and motivating to see like the impacts that community
0: organizing and community work can really have so true I'm, I'm going to be a
2: little different and I'm going to say rate design. I'm very excited about rate design because um, with all of this, there's, um, at least we think at the AG's office from a rate perspective, that we need to make sure that rates are designed in a way that the grid is going, that we're going to have a right size grid, that we're not going to overbuild expecting to have just more and more and more demand from electrification, that we find a way to kind of manage that demand. And the really the only way to do that is through different things like time varying rates and important export tariffs and um, load management plans. And we just want a much more proactive utility to say, this is how we see electrification and other ind- and DG and all this coming on board. And this is how we're going to manage it so that we can keep costs down. So from a rate payer perspective, I'm very excited about what, what we're going to do in rate design over the next uh, five years or so and
0: how that will develop. that's great. Um, I guess what are,
1: um, I guess it's a little bit more forward looking in terms of just your work specifically, like three of your um, top priorities for your advocacy and for your work um, right now. And then, um, you know, it does seem like a a point where a lot of people are looking at what's going to be happening in the next few years. So just what you think
2: it holds for you. So just piggybacking what I was just saying, affordability is number one, I'm figuring out how to make this clean energy transition in an affordable way um, that doesn't you know, drive up people's electric bills to the point where they struggle to pay them. Um, accountability and cost controls for the utilities, making sure that when they make the investments that are supposed to deliver benefits, that those benefits are actually delivered and that they're done in a cost-effective manner. Um, And then transparency and accessibility is a really important piece as well. I think making sure that the community, there's a lot of community engagement up front, um, that communities understand what's going on what changes are being made, if there's new infrastructure, if there's infrastructure upgrades, why they're happening, and that they can have a voice at the table and know how to access um, the DPU, the EFSB, the Energy Facility Siting Board, and that they um, can participate and um, have their voices not only heard, but be con- seriously
0: considered. So I think that's another key piece that um, that's a priority for our office and that I think we'll see more of.
3: Um, yeah, I know the the um, AGO's office have been leading on some really, really exciting work um, on, on sort of public accountability and accessibility um, that we're really excited about. Um, truly, truly, um, there are many different states with many different governments, and we're really grateful for Massachusetts and, and the leadership they show. Um, I wasn't prompt to say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I think for for me, the real the real sort of um, the sort of top priority and, and the top curiosity across our work is energy democracy. This this idea of, of decision-making power of for folks who are impacted by energy decisions. And I think this is like sort of dovetails this kind of nicely, like thing about, you know, there's sort of the trap that you could be designing um, quote unquote, socially equitable policies that say like, congratulations, communities of color, you are now can be customers and workers. And it's like, this is not enough. Um, this is like not, um, this does not sort of suit sort of substantive justice, nor is it procedural um, justice or, or, or equity. So I, I think like really focusing on how to change the relationship to power for folks who are sort of like been traditionally like intentionally marginalized from that power is like the way we approach the work. Um, it manifests in different ways in different places. Um, but I think like, like truly across the board, um, that, that's the, the key curiosity. I think it's like with, with so much uh, of like a new tailwind, I think like like the Inflation Reduction Act provides clean energy with this, this it, there's a ton of problems it doesn't solve, but it really does like give some like market security to market actors where like we have a much clearer picture of like what solar is gonna be worse, so we can go forth and, and, and solar. Um, but it really doesn't, um, it does some things, but I think there's still like, I'll say there's like, a, I think there's a lot of room to really focus on uh, on, on how to um ensure that the, the transition is truly uh, and, and meaningfully um you know shifts power in, in favor of folks who, who have been
0: depowered um in the work. Yeah um a just and equitable transition is definitely
4: a priority for CLF as well. Um, we recognize that there have been communities that have been historically bearing the burden of infrastructure siting, of uh, poor air quality as a result of infrastructure siting, um, lack of access to resources, uh, lack of um, a voice in the decision-making process, uh, and we, you know, want to make sure that the people who have historically borne that burden are not continuing to bear the burden of the energy transition and that we're uplifting um, their their voices in terms of what they, you know, hope to see and what they really want. Because ultimately, like, they're the ones that know best what they need and what what has happened to them Um and so like who better to to speak for them than themselves um i would say that the the things i mentioned at the beginning uh getting clean energy onto the electric grid um cleaning up our heating and cooling of our buildings cleaning up our transportation systems um expanding public transportation uh throughout boston and getting it, <laughs> making it work <laughs> and then, um, you know, expanding, uh, making it so that it's affordable, making it so that more people can use it. Um, those are all all priorities for us. Yeah, I'd be curious just to follow up on
1: those points in terms of the, um, the clean energy transition and um, implementation of what have been established as some, you know, both on the state and federal level um, at the energy conference, um, sign up soon. Uh, (laughs) We've been talking about how there really is this, like, you know, in Massachusetts, we live in a place where laws can get passed and they do get passed. And federally, we have legislation and there's this some, what of a struggle to get to built, to get it done, and I realize that that's fifty thousand panels. Let alone, you know, a last question. But I'd just be curious for more of, um, you know, uh, getting to um, physical infrastructure. What you see in terms of some of the specific challenges to implementing these goals that we've established?
0: That probably wasn't very nice to throw into you.
3: Last question. (laughs) I I I can start. I mean, something that I think has really come come to a head now is, is interconnection of renewable resources and local grids. I mean, we, you have the grid, like a part of the challenge you see is like, you have developers that like from the sort of the developer side, right. They've got, they've got capital ready. They have like willing people, willing, um, folks to do the work, but it's like, you'll find that if you've got a delightful field, we can put a huge solar farm, but it's like not near a substation and you'll, you can say, Hey, we want to see if this is something we can connect. And then you'll, um, you know submit this. Um, to the ISO if you're a certain size or you submit it to the utility uh, and the project will wait in a black box and then get told, cool, cool, cool. If you want to interconnect this thing, you owe us like half a million dollars. And hopefully that pencil's out for you. Hopefully that still works. Um, And so there's different iterations of this in in various States, um, but it's like, all right, like how do we fix this interconnection problem? Um, And it's sort of, it's holding up like everything. It's like the bottleneck we find in States that, Massachusetts, it's definitely an issue in New York. It's like comically bad where people like sort of like throw projects into an interconnection queue, just to like rove and like see if they're going to get knocked out and like use the information they gather to like extrapolate where they can build. Uh, and so the, the queue actually has like a really, the, the interconnection queue the the has like a really inaccurate view of like how many projects are going to come to fruition. And so like planning policy um, can be really difficult based on that. Um, but just sort of, you know, and then so doing that, you know, requires like a multi-stakeholder process, which I know Massachusetts has just instituted, which is like really exciting, um, very forward thinking uh, and forward looking. Um, but yeah, in- interconnection, hosting capacity, um, transmission are the three um, words of death, I think, for for solar. But there are also problems that can be solved
0: um, and really need to be solved in a multi-stakeholder way. Yeah,
4: interconnection is a huge one. NIMBYism also, and just like, yeah, enough said, right? (laughs) Um, but ultimately, you know, the people who have historically always showed up are the ones who continue to show up. And we really need to develop a a public process that is like meaningfully taking into account all voices and not just, um, the ones of people who can afford the best advocates and afford to take time out of their day to to attend um,
0: and continue to push push projects into um, communities
4: that have a lack of access to to funding to fight to fight uh, the the construction in their own backyards.
2: Yes, that I can kind of build off of that a little bit and just say we have, you know, uh, we have our clean energy goals. And a lot of that is around how can we displace the fossil fuel um, generation on our grid with clean energy, like hydroelectricity and offshore wind, obviously solar um, and with the hydro and the offshore wind, we've seen you know a lot of obstacles in the last year. Um, getting there's a transmission line. Um, we we have a contract that's subsidized by Mass- Massachusetts ratepayers to build a transition li- transmission line from Quebec down to Massachusetts through Maine, um, and. You know, the idea was that that was going to provide a lot of base load power that we desperately needed. That would be, you know, zero emissions power. Um, and that has run into a lot of legal obstacles for a lot of variety of reasons. It's a little bit of a, of a fight between different people in the energy industry, honestly. Um, but... It is. It's frustrating. It's um, and it's really slowed things down on that front end. And then, sure, if you follow the news at all, you've seen that we've had a problem um, with offshore wind contracts. The economy has kind of totally disrupted um, the, the the contracts that were entered into last year, um, and has made you know, according to the people who entered into those contracts, have made them um, uneconomic and uh they are trying to back out. So that's a real problem because that represents a significant amount of clean energy that we were banking on to help us get to our goals to um to get to our clean energy goals I think by 2030 or 2035 I can never remember there's a lot of dates that we talk about in <laughs> energy but soon um so that's a I think dealing with all these different parties, these private entities, in addition to the regulated entities and, and trying to, um, there's, it's like, sometimes you think you're, you feel like you're fighting a war on a lot of different fronts to get to our goals, but we will continue to fight on, um, yeah
1: right in there. Uh, No, I did want to save a few minutes for uh, questions. If anyone has them in the audience, we start a few minutes late. So if anyone has
0: questions for any of our esteemed what? (laughs) Your excuse. Yeah, go ahead. i don't think it's in direct tension i think what we want to do is to build the grid in
2: a smart and cost effective way and we are involved in there's a, there's interconnection docket's happening right now in massachusetts and we are very involved and we have put forth a plan which we think is a good one um to do to to kind of build up the grid in a way that is cost effective and sends the right price signals and hopefully makes it easier to interconnect um, no, we totally support upgrading the grid. It's just making sure that we're doing it in a cost-effective manner.
0: Yeah, that uh, that that's true. I
3: mean, I, I just think that there's there's so many like layers to it. That like both of those can be goals that simultaneously yeah. make sense together. Um, there's a lot of work needs to be done to upgrade and build the grid. But
0: yeah, you just you can't um, do it willy nilly. Yeah,
1: I think that. There's a lot of problems that folks are trying to tackle from, you know, our different perspectives up here, certainly, um, that the problems are not getting easier. (laughs) Uh, You know, technology helps us in certain ways, but, um, you know, like uh, some of us who've worked in energy efficiency, there were some years where there was some real low hanging fruit and now things are uh, getting You know, it's not just free light bulbs anymore, if you're really going to make a dent. And so that doesn't mean the problem can't be solved and it's not worth trying, but it just means that it's it's not easy, Um, you know, and it gets expensive. Um, And that's, you know, that's there's a lot of really smart people thinking about it from different angles for those reasons, because it's hard. So that. Uh, I think we're done. Thank you. Let's get a drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you to our
0: panelists for joining us today. An extra thanks to Priya for coming here in one piece. <laughs>